As you know, I don't even try to compete with them. <laughs> I'm just not that cute. Well, from time to time, parties get out of hand. Uh, case in point, in 2012, Myrta Woosthaus of the small Dutch town of Heron invited a few of her friends to her 16th birthday party. She used Facebook to do it, but she set the privacy settings wrong on her event. And within two weeks, 30,000 people had confirmed their plans to attend the party. A campaign to promote her party had sprung up online without her permission. There was a website, there was a Twitter feed, they had produced YouTube previews for the party to get people to come. She tried to call the party off, of course, and it failed. She actually had to flee the town on the day of the party. 5,000 drunken partygoers descended on this small town of 18,000. Uh, expecting trouble, 500 Dutch riot police had deployed to the town when the party didn't materialize and the crowd was very unhappy. Rioting spread into the town center. There was extensive vandalism and looting. There was general mayhem. It took five hours to break up the not-a-party. There were, in the end, 34 arrests. There were six injuries. This was a party that got way, way, way out of hand, so be careful with your privacy settings on Facebook. The Bible records a party that was of even more epic proportions and that quite literally got out of hand in Daniel chapter 5. And we're going to be focusing on that today. But first, I want to talk about a party that will hopefully not get out of hand in a bad way that we're having right here at Lakers Baptist Church in two weeks. All right, two weeks from today is our annual Thanksgiving dinner. We do it early before calendars get full when people start traveling. It's a Sunday night. But we, a little bit like Facebook, we do want to invite our friends and our neighbors. At the end of the service, you're going to get a little square like this from the ushers, whether you go out the back or down the front. This is not your refrigerator reminder of the event. This is not your invitation. Your invitation is in the bulletin, and it's electronic, and I'm telling you, come have dinner at 5 o'clock on the 4th of November. This is an invitation, each of you will get one, to invite someone else to come and join us for dinner. And if it gets a little out of hand, I don't think it'll turn into, you know, rioting a la the Dutch. If it gets a little out of hand, then I think God will be glorified if we have so many people that were spilling out and eating turkey in the hallways. So be faithful to that when you get your invitation card. It is for you to give away... And we expect that we're going to be doing this a lot more often. We want to make it easy for people to invite people to Lakers Baptist Church. We've had some wonderful stories and experiences in the last year of people who were good and faithful about inviting friends and neighbors to come and join us, uh, whether it's for a Bible study or a church or an event or dinner. Uh, so we want to make it easy for you to invite people. So expect to start seeing more and more of these kind of cards and we'll have some electronic tools down the road and things like that. But We'll start with a, a simple invitation for dinner. So let's get back to this party that got out of hand. Daniel chapter 5. It's our focus because it is the next piece of our series as we walk through the book of Daniel and try to think very carefully 
about what it means to live in a God-glorifying manner while we are in the midst of this increasingly strange culture in which we live. Now, once again, I am not going to read all of chapter 5 for you. It is very, very long, and if we did, we would be late for Discover LRBC, which if you've been coming to the church for a while but want to get more plugged in, great way to come. So don't need a reservation to show up at 12 o'clock down in the conference room for lunch and talk about ways to get connected with the body here. So I will tell you the story. I will highlight some key verses. Once again, I encourage you, take some time this afternoon to read Daniel 5. It's an amazing story. I, Daniel is just so enjoyed digging into these uh, stories in Daniel, and I know you will too. So I would encourage you to take time, whether it's on your own or with family and friends, which is even better, to read Daniel chapter 5. And Daniel chapter 5 is interesting because we make a huge time leap from Daniel chapter 4. Many, many years have passed. As the story begins, it is October 12th of the year 539 B.C. We actually know that. October 12th, 539 B.C. Daniel is now a very old man. You'll recall he was kidnapped to Babylon. At this point, it is some 66 years earlier that he was taken to Babylon. He's probably around 80 years old. King Nebuchadnezzar, who was sort of our main figure for the first four chapters of Babylon, has been dead for 23 years at this point. So we took a a big leap in time. The current king is named Nabonidus, and he is officially the king, but he has been living away from the capital of Babylon in some sort of self-imposed exile for a decade, and he has left his son Belshazzar as his co-regent, the number two, ruling in cooperation with him. And and the situation is grim for the Babylonians. The Medo-Persian Empire, uh, their army is closing in on the capital city. And because of that, or at least coincidental with that, Belshazzar decided to throw a massive feast for his wives, his concubines, and 1,000 of the lords of Babylon. And perhaps it was an effort to build morale and confidence in his leadership as this Persian army is closing in on the city of Babylon. And, and as the wine flows freely through this party, Belshazzar decides he needs to demonstrate his might and his majesty. As verse 2 reports that he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, these golden vessels were sacred cups. They were cups sacred to the God of Israel that had been looted by Nebuchadnezzar out of the temple back 66 years earlier, as described in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And what we would observe is that while Nebuchadnezzar had taken these sacred cups out of the temple, he had been wise and respectful enough to to not use them. To not use them for self-promotion. He just stored them away into the temple of his God. Belshazzar, on the other hand, who 
is not, by the way, literally the son of Nebuchadnezzar. That word that's translated as father here can also be translated as predecessor. So he is a successor of a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. He decides he's going to use the cups. And quite likely it's because he wanted to demonstrate that he was braver and tougher and stronger than even the great Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, he's doing this to kind of amp the people up as the Medo-Persian army is closing in for the final battle. And so he, he breaks out the cups, he distributes them throughout the party so that everyone at the party can drink their wine. But they didn't just defile these cups by drinking out of them, taking the sacred cups of God and just drinking their, their wine out of them. Instead, they profaned the cups, right? There's a difference, right? They didn't just make them unclean by using them for ordinary use. They profaned them by using them to toast and praise the false gods of Babylon. The gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And now I'm going to read the next part of the narrative directly, uh, beginning in verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Belshazzar is quaking in terror. I'm sort of reminded of like Scooby-Doo or something like that at this point. And as he is shaken and quaken, Someone far wiser than he comes into the room. Verse 9 describes her as the queen, but the, the word here can also be translated to be queen mother, and that seems likelier just since it had already established that the wives of Belshazzar were already at the party. The queen mother, by the way, was known in ancient writings for her wisdom, the particular uh, mother of Belshazzar, or even possibly the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, who was also alive at this time, both renowned in the ancient world for being wise women. And the queen mother refers Belshazzar to Daniel, citing his long history of extraordinary insight and service to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Belshazzar summons Daniel, but there is clearly no love lost between these two men. Belshazzar just dismisses, ignores his many years of service and addresses him simply as an exile of Judah. But he extends him that same offer that, hey, if you can interpret this thing, I'll make you number three in Babylon. Now clearly, Daniel considers Belshazzar to be a lesser son of greater kings. And so he declines the offer, but he nonetheless interprets the message for him beginning by explaining that God had made Nebuchadnezzar great. And that when Nebuchadnezzar had started thinking he was all that, God had humbled him like an animal. As we have seen in every preceding chapter, right, there is a key verse or verses that helps us understand the point of the chapter. Here in chapter 5, it's verses 22 and 23. 
As Daniel says, and you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Belshazzar had been judged by God, and he was about to be destroyed along with the Babylonian Empire that night. Verses 25 through 28 says, And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. That's what it says there. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peretz, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel got the promised reward, but verses 30 and 31 conclude this way. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is a much more severe story than what took place in Daniel chapter 4, even though they address similar topics. And so there is one key lesson that we need to understand and apply from chapter 5, which is that God humbles those who defy him. You see, Belshazzar was not simply prideful the way Nebuchadnezzar was. He took it to a whole other level because he defied God and paid for it with his life and his empire. Even as the walls were literally closing in around him, Belshazzar threw a party as an act of foolish pride that turned into blasphemous defiance of the living God. He had to just demonstrate his superiority to Nebuchadnezzar and, and his superiority to the God of Israel. So he pulls out the sacred cups that Nebuchadnezzar had so carefully preserved and stored. And then the drinking turns to blasphemy as he uses the cups of the living God to praise and worship false gods. And that's that difference between them. Because you see, Nebuchadnezzar was, was prideful, but he was teachable. He was idolatrous, but he wasn't outright blasphemous. Belshazzar, as Daniel pointed out, was not teachable. While Belshazzar had tremendous power in his immediate sphere of influence, of course, he never was going to understand the truth that Nebuchadnezzar ultimately embraced. That despite all earthly appearances, God is always in control. It doesn't matter how bad it looks around there or how good it looks around there. God is always in control. Verses 24 to 28 reveal God numbers the days of earthly kingdoms. He weighs both kings and ordinary men and women. He gives power and authority to whom he wills. And note those words in verse 31. Darius the Mede didn't conquer Babylon. Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Who did he receive it from? God. Right? Because it is God's to give. This is the lesson we've seen over and over in chapter 4 and 5. The Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom He will. 
God humbles those who defy him. So what's the significance of all this for us as we live today in our 21st century Babylon? Last week, we explored the implications of God's sovereignty over the world's kingdoms and geopolitical events, how we can rest in his power. And if you missed it, I would encourage you to go look it up and listen online. Because those applications still apply to this chapter. But but there are some very personal applications that I think we have to explore today as we consider the implications of God's destruction of Belshazzar. I'll summarize it this way. Since God humbles those who defy Him, don't defy God by the way you live your life. You see, Belshazzar's fatal mistake was using the sacred cups of God, the sacred vessels of God, for personal enjoyment and to pursue false gods. Here's the bridge into our modern world that we need to pay attention to, and it is simply this. My friends, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, right, if you call yourself a Christian, then you are the sacred vessel of God in this day and age. See, God's not in the business of sanctifying cups or treasuring material objects anymore. Today, God sanctifies and treasures people, specifically the people who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have become walking, talking temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 16, uh, sorry, 19 and 20 proclaims, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. As Christians, you and I are the sacred temple of God. Our bodies contain the Holy Spirit. We are the sacred vessels today in 2018. So the question is, are we living in light of that truth? Or are we using God's sacred vessels for whatever personal pleasures we desire or or to chase after false gods the way Belshazzar did? When we use our bodies, God's sacred vessels, to sinfully chase after worldly physical pleasures through things like gluttonous overeating or sexual sin or drug abuse or alcohol abuse, we are taking the lives and bodies that God has gifted us with and wasting them in pursuit of worldly pleasure. We're just like Belshazzar and his entourage as they use God's sacred cups to get drunk at a party. Or when we use the vast majority of our time and energy to chase after money, stuff, status, promotions, or entertainment, we turn those things into false gods that rule over our lives and our thoughts and our emotions and our hopes. And when we find that we are sacrificing our families or our marriage or our relationship with God on the altar of of these lesser things, we are using God's sacred vessels to worship idols. And we are just like Belshazzar. So yes, we are here in church this morning. That's good. Maybe we come on Wednesday night. That's good. But if the rest of our time we are 
pridefully making our own gods out of the things that really get us excited, that really get our hearts and minds racing, where we really put our, our time and our energy and our focus. And we chase after them with our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our souls, our time, our energy, our money, all of those things which are supposed to be dedicated to God first and foremost. We are like Belshazzar. James 4, verses 4 through 6, describe us all too well. He's writing to Christians here. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, and Christians are not exempt from this. That's the point of James. Belshazzar had to learn this lesson the hard way. God opposes the proud. And yet, so often, we God-loving Christians are the proud. Right? We proudly give a little bit of our time, money, and energy to God while we devote the majority of our lives to whatever pleases us. As Christians, we are called to be all in for God. God needs to get the first and the best of our time. God needs to get the first and the best of our money. God needs to get the first and the best of our energy. That's what it means to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And that, my friends, is the very command of Jesus, the Jesus we say we love. But are we obeying Him when He laid it out like that? We should want to obey Him. We should want to obey this command to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We should deeply desire to obey this and to pursue God passionately and confident, knowing that God exalts the humble so we don't have to exalt ourselves. Romans 12.1 commands us to make ourselves, all aspects of our lives, living sacrifices to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so, brothers and sisters, I would make that same appeal this morning. Let go of your pride and your priorities. Let go of your plans and your projects. And give yourself over to God. We like to control every aspect of our lives, but that's not what we're called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Instead, I encourage you, invite you, appeal to you, yield your will to God. Take a risk for Him. Commit to living by faith. Find a new area to serve within the church, even if you don't have the time. Give generously to turn God's vision for this church into a reality, even if you don't exactly know where the money is coming from. Try something you are very uncomfortable with that you know God is calling you to try anyway.
Accept God's invitation to live by humble faith, and I promise you won't regret it. James 4, 8 through 10 concludes the matter this way. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, what does he mean by double-minded? He's talking about people who live with one foot in the church and the other foot and most of your weight in the regular world chasing after the same things that everyone else is chasing after. That's what it is to be double-minded, where our loyalty is split between what we want and desire and pursue personally and what God is calling us to do. He continues to be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Back in chapter 5, Daniel was an old man. He was retired. He had largely been forgotten. He sought no power or influence of his own and yet he was willing to serve yet another king, one he didn't even seem to care for. But very soon, he would be swept along by the movement of God into unprecedented power and influence as he serves a completely different empire where he was going to face, at the age of roughly 80, yet another test of his faith and courage. Think about lions. We'll talk about next week. At an age when most of us would rather just have a quiet dinner at home. So how are we able to do these things? How can we live like Daniel and and shut off that pride, that selfishness, that desire to control the way we live that naturally drives us forward? How How do we learn to live humbly amidst a world that celebrates and rewards shameless self promotion How can we patiently wait for God to take care of business when we are so frustrated about all of the ungodly and proud and powerful in the world, right, in this world of arrogance and blasphemy? By imitating Jesus Christ. By recognizing that He is our model of humility. And that through Christ, we can humble ourselves and be exalted by God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8 through eight describes how Christ modeled humility for us. If He can do it, we're called to do it too. Listen to the humility of Jesus Christ. It is beyond anything we're actually capable of. We are just called to humility. But hear His humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though... He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is God himself. He is the second person of the Trinity, and yet to accomplish God's eternal plan to redeem all of creation from the the devastating effects of human sin, Jesus became human. He took on a human nature and a human body, and He entered our world that that very first Christmas over 2,000 years ago, and and there He learned firsthand about hunger and and cold and heat and, and thirst, and He experienced temptation just like every other human being. This This is humility. 
for the God of creation to experience the same things that we deal with every day. He set aside heaven's glory to live in the dust and the dirt of fallen humanity. That's humility, but that was just the beginning of his humility. Because after a brief career of preaching and teaching and working miracles and healing and casting out demons, he humbled himself by going to a painful and humiliating and terrifying death. He obeyed God's plan and command out of humility. He allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross. Where on the one hand, he suffered horrible physical pain. On the other hand, he experienced even greater spiritual pain. Because at the cross, Jesus took all of the guilt and all of the sin of the world upon his innocent self. Ultimately, Jesus was born to die. He became a human in order to become a sacrificial lamb. He was the ultimate final sacrifice of one who was perfectly innocent, infinitely righteous, and supremely holy. So he could cover our sin with his blood. Sacrifice his body to save our souls. This is what we will be remembering and celebrating in just a few minutes when we gather around the Lord's table. His death was horrifying, it was humiliating, it was excruciating, right? This is the humility of the creator of the universe suffering and dying on a Roman cross. And it was absolutely necessary to redeem us from our own sin. Because our sin, every every little bit of it, is so horrible we can never redeem ourselves from it. We can never do enough good things with our lives to offset the terrible sins we have each committed with our thoughts and our words and our actions and our cowardly inactions. As we continually pile up more sin, we would be utterly hopeless in our sin except that Jesus humbled himself to give us hope. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus opened the path to forgiveness and and cleanness and wholeness for anyone who has been broken by their sin and who's put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Through faith in Christ, we are made new and clean and whole. This is what Paul proclaims in Romans 3, 23-26, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you stand as a new creation. But realize Christ didn't die so that we could stand around. He calls each of us to follow him. In Luke 9.23, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is calling you to follow him. Right here, right now, today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, every single day after that. He is calling us to humble ourselves, 
to stop defying him by the way we live our lives and to submit our lives to his lordship. He is calling us to take up our crosses daily, to die to ourselves, to let go of our desires and ambitions and goals and plans and truly live for him. And the question we need to grapple with for the rest of this week or month or year, as long as it takes, is are we doing that? Are we humbling ourselves in following Christ? We need to reflect on our lives and determine whether we are imitating Christ or whether we are imitating Belshazzar. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you indeed raise up kings and kingdoms. You indeed have sovereign control over all of the events of the world going on around us. And no matter how much it looks like things are spinning out of control, you are in control. And that, Lord, is why you have made the very personal call to us through Christ that we need to be more concerned about taking care of our obedience to Christ, the way we treat the sacred vessel you have made of our bodies in obedience to you, Lord. Father God, there may be some here who have not yet put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and I I pray that they would make that decision, Lord, that they would that they would accept Jesus as who He is, your Son, eternal and glorious, and the only path to your presence. That they would put their faith in Him and renounce sin and embrace Him as Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray that that would happen for any here who have not yet made that choice. But for the rest of us, the question is, are we living our lives in a way that honors and glorifies you? Are we giving you the best, the first? Are we serving as sacred vessels for your glory? And so, Lord, I pray that you will hear us as we confess to you our sin, our selfishness, our failure, truly follow Jesus. Lord, hear us as we confess our sin, Lord. Lord, forgive us our, our sins and our shortcomings. And Lord, help us to stand comfortable and assured of the fact that you have forgiveness, that your word guarantees that when we ask forgiveness, you are faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord God, if there are any here struggling with questions of guilt or shame, because of sin that has already been confessed to you, I pray that you would set their hearts at ease. Give them comfort.
And Lord, as we are preparing shortly to gather around your table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I pray that you will unite us into one spirit and one body, and that you will make vividly clear to our minds and our memories the humility of our Lord Jesus, the terrible suffering he went through, the price he paid for our freedom and our eternal life, Lord, that we may live in light of who we are today, new creations in Christ. I lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.